The glory of humanity is the difference, the differentiation, individuality of each person, and the fact that each individual is unique and irreplaceable, which, which makes each individual precious, precious, precious. I'd like to talk to you this afternoon about two classes of Americans, and it may not be the two classes you think of, but nonetheless, there are two distinct classes in America, and we have to break up. Break up. Break up. Break up. You don't get freedom peacefully. Anyone who is depriving you of freedom isn't deserving of, an, of a peaceful approach. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being by any means necessary. Welcome to the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast, a Utah-based program that focuses on ideas, politics, culture, and the current events going on in the world around us, whether locally or globally. I'm your host, David Iglesias. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Unrestrained Thoughts Podcast. Um, I'm here today with a good friend of mine, Reed Coverdale. How you doing, Reed? I'm doing well, David. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks, man. So Reed is uh, Reed's really cool. He has his own show called The Naturalist Capitalist. For those who probably already saw that I um, was part of a stream he did with some other people, including Scott Horton. Um, before that, Reed has been in Utah for, you've been here since 2019. Is that right? Um, let's see, June of 2020. 2020. Okay. So yeah, and then we met at a Florida event and then just kind of been hanging out whenever you're in town because uh, you're a trucker. So you want to tell people a little bit about what you do, what uh, what your life is like on the road and what you haul around? Sure. So yeah, I moved out here to Utah from New Hampshire in uh, June of 2020. Um, I left New Hampshire before all the craziness of COVID set in. It was actually while I was traveling, doing job interviews, because I had several um, interviews lined up for heavy haul truck driving jobs, and they all fell through the floor when COVID hit the scene. Um, and I took a couple months off, and then the uh, job in Utah opened up, so I took it, and I moved out here, and... I just move oversized loads, 99% uh, of it is heavy equipment. Well, occasionally just move something that's big that isn't a piece of equipment, but it's almost always heavy equipment. Um, and I take it to different job sites, different dealerships, different mines. I go to the ports in California sometimes, pick stuff up, bring it all the way here. Uh, this week, I just went to Kansas, just bringing a drill rig over there. Um, so I'm usually kind of the Rocky mountains and West. I don't usually go East of there, but obviously Kansas that's East of there. Um, so we occasionally do stuff out there, but, um, I've never driven to the East coast for this job. I know he's done it a couple times with some weird loads they get, but typically it's just Western stuff. And I like driving in the West cause the East sucks. Everything's <laughs> tight and all the bridges are low all the weight limits are really low, but the Midwest is just boring. There's just nothing there. You're just driving <laughs> through. It's not fields. It's a field, you know, the same field for like a thousand miles. Oh, uh, but out West, I really like driving because you got mountains, canyons, um, you know, all sorts of cool, natural uh, beauty that you get to drive in but the roads are made for heavy hauling. You know, the bridges are taller, the weight limits are higher and the permitting is just easier. Ironically, I'm moving back East in a few months, but I do really love the job I do. I'm not leaving because I don't like Utah or don't like my job. It's because I see an opportunity to make a difference politically back where I'm from, but I, I really do love driving out here and moving the big stuff out here. It's, it's quite a job. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you, maybe a lot of the stuff you do, it's not, it doesn't limit itself to one industry. You're just hauling big, um, equipment for whatever industry is just as long as it's big, heavy stuff, that's what you're doing. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, 
most of it is like excavators, bulldozers, okay. off-road dump trucks, things like that. Gotcha. But sometimes it's something weird, like uh, the, the Kennecott mine here in Salt Lake City, largest open pit mine in the world. Um, they were retiring a bunch of dump trucks, like the big mining dump trucks, and they were moving them up to Canada. And so they'd take them all the way apart, take all the wheels off, take the bed off, take the cab off, and just get it down to the smallest pieces possible. But the dump beds are so big that they had to cut them into three pieces um, so they could ship them to Canada. But we were shipping them from the mine to the Caterpillar, um, the, the Caterpillar uh, dealership, which was like a, I don't know, a 20 mile drive or something. So these things were 16 feet tall on the trailer and they were about 28 feet wide. Um, and so the state highway patrol came and just shut the whole road down and you just drive right down the middle of the road. And, you know, you have pilot cars as you're going around the corner, they tell you if you're going to hit the traffic lights or not or anything. And so um, there's, there's that type of weird stuff that you run into. Uh, we have trailers um, overall length with the big trailers. Uh, I'm like 116 feet long. Um, I've hauled up to gross weight 240,000 pounds. Um, so yeah, just really big oversized specialty stuff. We don't typically do legal size loads. It's usually always oversized. Okay, sweet. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think usually people when they imagine truck drivers are thinking like, you know, goods that you deal with every every day, but yours is, is a lot bigger. Um, I would be I'd be a fool if I didn't bring up. So we're talking about how you're a trucker. Um, it'd be uh, criminal if I didn't ask you about, you know, what do you, what was the, uh, cause there was the whole trucker strike or the whole trucker rally that was, you know, trying to imitate what was going on in Canada or it inspired them to do it here. You were actually over in DC, not for that, but you happened to be there at the same time. What was that like? So, I don't know a ton about it aside from what I saw because it's really hard to find anything out about it. Like it's not being reported on. Um, but where I went was, I forget the name of the town now, but it was in Maryland, like, I don't know, 70 or maybe, yeah, 50, somewhere between like 50 and 70 miles away from DC. And at the time they had decided to congregate there instead of in DC, because there were National Guard vehicles and FBI personnel everywhere. And they were afraid they'd get sabotaged if they went into DC. So where I went, I I'd say there were between like 50 and 100 trucks. Um, probably around a 1000 people, something like that. Um, and it was very Trumpian, like very right wing, very evangelical, very, it was very politicized. It was kind of unfortunate. It didn't really remind me of the Canadian trucker strike that much because the Canadian trucker strike was very universal. It was just fuck Trudeau, fuck these mandates, lift them and we'll go home. This was like, if you were a left winger, who was against mandates. I don't think you'd really feel that welcome here. There were some speakers who sounded good. They were pretty universal, but the overtone was definitely Trump 2024 vote Republican, you know? Um, and it didn't seem like the participation was anywhere near the Canadian trucker strike. And I think the reason for that is because all the mandates are getting lifted anyway in the United States. And even if they hadn't, um, you know, like two months ago, a month to two months ago, when all this was taking place in Canada, everything in Canada was much stricter than it was here. And it was universal. You couldn't, there's no like free state of Saskatchewan, like there is, you know, the free state, New Hampshire or Florida or whatever. So there was no outlet. So they didn't really have a choice. Um, so I don't want to disparage any of the guys who are taking part in the u.s one but my overall 
takeaway was not one of being impressed i guess it was just kind of i feel like at this point we just feel like we want to have a trucker protest too because canada did it yeah but we can't can't let canada out out freedom us <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so i don't know i mean i i don't even know what's still going there honestly like i've tried to I, i've seen a couple people put something on twitter they were circling dc i think but as far as I know, they haven't gone into D.C. and haven't shut anything down. But I don't think people are really paying attention to it like they were the one up in Canada. Right. Yeah, no, I definitely I wasn't even paying too much attention to the Canadian one, but I definitely did hear about it a lot. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, with this one, I and I think part of the problem, too, though, is that I think the whole Russia Ukraine thing kind of happened yeah. right at the same time. So yeah, what a for sure. what a what a great pivot, you know, from talking yeah, they, about all we that. Might, we might be hearing more about the U.S. one if this hadn't happened with Russia. Like, maybe there would be some more emphasis on it, but no one cares about yeah. anything except for Russia right now. So Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's a great um, place to kind of turn our conversation. So I wanted to have you on precisely, you know, as much as like this trucking stuff is really cool to know about. And like, especially because two weeks ago, everyone was like talking about it. But now um, with Russia and Ukraine, the whole rhetoric surrounding going to war is the thing people are talking about. It's all I ever hear when I go to work or anywhere, just even in my family, in my house, you know, we're always talking about what's going on. Um, But a couple weekends ago, you and I were at the Libertarian Party event in Utah with Scott Horton when he gave his awesome two-hour lecture on the history of Russia-Ukraine, which I hope everybody um, who's listening to this podcast has either been made aware of or has already listened to it. If not, go listen to it. But Reed, you actually did a little bit of an opening for him and told your story about you know being raised in an anti-war family. Um, and I thought that was really cool, especially because it's not like usually when people think anti-war they think left-leaning they think you know that side of the political aisle but you had a little bit different of a political bent to your family do you want to talk or can you go into that yeah um so my parents were both raised christian and they were both very conservative christians in the early 2000s and they weren't libertarians like this is before the ron paul revolution and even when the Ron Paul thing happened, they didn't really jump on board with it, you know, several years later. So they were not like libertarian. They were conservative. I mean, I think they would have had pretty conventionally, they did have conventionally conservative views on things like gay marriage and drug laws and things like that. But, you know, they were Christian. So when it says thou shalt not kill to them, that meant, well, you don't murder people like a thug, no death penalty, no abortion, and then no war. Cause that's all killing. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty universal <laughs> concept. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, so they were in a tough spot because like I said, they were social conservatives and they were very pro-life. That was actually their number one issue but they're also against bombing children. So they voted for George Bush in the 2000 election. And then in 2001, we moved to a new town. Uh, I was seven years old at the time and I'm one of five of their kids. And my dad's a high school English teacher. So he got this job at a new school. You know, he's a new figure in the community. And then 9-11 happens like two weeks into his first year. Um, and over the next couple of years, he became a very prominent figure in the community. He's probably the most beloved teacher at the high school. He probably has been, you know, for the last 20 years now, since we, uh, since we moved there and, um, he's probably the most conservative, or he at least was at the time, the most conservative teacher at the school as well. Um, And in 2003, when we decided we were going to invade Iraq, he was very much against that. Um, And he had some pressure to not be against it because our church supported it. You know, most of 
our extended family that lived in New Hampshire supported it. Uh, my uncle was in the National Guard and deployed to Iraq. Um, you know, there's a lot of people in the community who were friends with my parents who supported the war. And it was funny, the people who were against the war weren't politically or religiously aligned with my parents at all. Like, I remember this one woman who was like a super liberal um, atheist woman who was really proud of my dad for standing against the war, but they had nothing in common, you know, politically or religiously or whatever. Uh, and in 2003, um, I forget what month the invasion started in 2003. Do you remember? Uh, I should, because I was just looking into this stuff like six months ago, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I just remember it was cold and we were standing on the side of the road with signs uh, that we'd made from cardboard that just said, you know, no war in Iraq, bombs kill children, uh, blood is thicker than oil. Like he, he'd just come up with like five or six different slogans and we were all holding them. And this was pretty radical for a conservative teacher to do. And I remember this talk show host, uh, he was driving by and he saw this and he figured, oh, this guy must be some liberal whack job or whatever. So he pulls over and he starts talking to my dad. He found he finds out, oh, you're an English teacher. So, you know, the identity politics ringing even harder, like, oh, English teacher against yeah. the war. I see where this is going. Super typical. You know, so he invited him. <laughs> he invited him on the show. But that said, sure. And so he called in on the phone. I think it was the next morning. And I was just sitting in the living room listening to the radio broadcast. And the guy brings him on. And you could tell by the questions he starts asking him, he's trying to set him up to look like a liberal goofball. So he's like, so Mr. Coverdale, do you think we should even have a standing military? Do you think we should defend ourselves as a country? And my dad was like, of course. But, you know, uh, I think he did point out like this war didn't make any sense, first of all because it, it didn't strategically align with what had happened on 9-11. But then he also said, even if it had, an invasion is just going to kill a bunch of innocent people. Um, you know, what happened on 9-11 was bad, but going and bombing Baghdad isn't going to fix that, you know, and it's not taking care of the people who were responsible for it. Um, and by the end of the interview the host realized my dad was actually more conservative than he was. But that whole concept of thou shalt not kill, meaning don't blow children up with Tomahawk missiles, you know, <laughs> it, it sort of makes sense. So I think he, he came out of the interview um, looking like the smart one and mm -hmm. the, the host was kind of befuddled. And then I remember the host's, counterpart you know the woman that was there with him she even said you know this guy makes sense what he's saying and the guy was like i don't think so no he doesn't make any sense and but oh man i just uh, yeah i that stuck with me because um i don't think i realized at the time the pressure that would have been on my parents to support the war oh yeah uh until now just because you know i didn't have to oppose a war that was in the public, you know, in the public knowledge uh, or in the public knowledge space. So, you know, I first started paying attention in like 2013, 2014, around the time that we were starting to arm the rebels against Assad. And I remember I was listening to Rand Paul a lot and he was saying, you know, if we fund these people, the weapons are going to fall into the hands of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. This is a terrible idea. We shouldn't do this. Um, but it wasn't until 2020 when Donald Trump airstrikes Soleimani, and then there's all this buzz about we're going to go to war with Iran. That was the first time that I really viewed myself as someone who's staunchly anti-war and I had to, you know, make a stand and be like, okay, this is stupid. We shouldn't do this. And it was also kind of easy because a bunch of people were against that. I mean, 
a bunch of liberals who are just yeah. anti-Trump. They were like, this is stupid. Why is he doing this? It's so dumb or whatever. It's not like the war in 2003. That was much more bipartisan and there was a lot more propaganda supporting it. It's a lot more similar to where we are right now with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and again, you know, now I'm in a spot where I know what I believe in and I'm not going to back down and I'm not going to be afraid of what other people think. I have a sister who's in the military. You know, I have a lot of right-wing friends, also got some liberal friends who also are all outraged about this, but I think it's our job, especially as anti-war libertarians, because, I mean, if you're an anti-war communist or something, like, I don't know, it's a little bit different, but if you're an anti-war libertarian, I feel like you're supposed to be right and you're supposed to have the facts straight. So it's not based on feeling. It's not based on humanitarianism. It's more based on just logic and fact. And we should be explaining to people why this war is happening and why getting involved more than we already have will just make it worse. And then also the humanitarian aspect of, you know, this is just going to cause more death and suffering than we already have caused if we get involved in this, especially since it'll be a nuclear war. Um, but yeah, I just, I think we should take my dad's example and be against war when it matters because now it's easy to be against the war in Iraq. It was 20 years ago that it started. Um, but being against it in 2003 took guts and it'll be the same with this. You know, I don't know what's going to unfold here, but in 10 years, it'll be easy to be like, oh yeah, phew, well, that would have been dumb to get into war with Russia. But right now is when it matters. You know, it, it, it counts to be against the war before it happens. Right. No. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, um, yeah, especially because when you mentioned like the whole 9-11 thing, that one, that was brutal because for a lot of people, you know, that was literally out of the, like nowhere. That happened out of the clear blue sky where just one day these terrorists came and blew up our towers. And so now everyone's freaking out. Well, we got to do something. There's people wanting to come kill us. And so we have to go kill them. And there's a lot more it's a lot easier to make that case of like, well, yeah, we were aggressed against, it's time to go fight them. Whereas right now, you know, it's not really our fight. This is, this is a NATO kind of conflict, which is stupid that we even have to be roped in. But no, I think you're, you're right on, you know, about the whole purpose of being anti-war. And it's funny because most people, obviously no one's going to come out and say they're pro-war. Um, everyone would say, well, yeah, I think war is bad. But I think the significance of being anti-war, when you actually label yourself that and you take a stand, you know, on that principle, it means that you are not just saying, yeah, war is bad. You're actively engaging in this argument, this conflict of like, look, I understand that there is a great, there might be a good case. And I would even argue that it's not even a good case, but for most normal people or unaware people, sure, that you can hear an argument that we should go do this. But to be actively anti-war is to understand the full context and the the ramifications too. I mean, I don't think people realize the, besides the death and the destruction, you know, you can look at images of, of these countries that the U S has bombed and just completely decimated um, and just see what the actual physical effects are. But a lot of people don't realize, you know, how it affects us here at home economically. They don't realize the long-term uh, damage that even ideologically, I mean, it, it completely shifts where people are at. I know that, you know, this is kind of a, a dividing line for maybe a lot of people who were huge Trump people fans, because there, when Trump was in office, you know, he rhetorically was like, Oh yeah, we've got to end the wars, bring troops home. Um, you know, he still was supporting the ongoing conflicts we, we had, he didn't start a new war, which is great. But now where actually there is, a really, really high stakes situation. Being anti-war is one of the, I would say the most important thing going on right now. And, and it's interesting because I feel like there's a different type of anti-war movement right now. Um, Cause when most people think of those types of 
political beliefs on being against war. A lot of people imagine like the 60s and 70s, right, during the Vietnam War. And my grandpa, he he wasn't in Vietnam, but he was drafted during that time and he served in South Korea and he told he tells me about how people spat on him and like treated him like shit. And he was just he was drafted. But now I feel like the movement today, at least the movement you know we're a part of and I only hear from is more from a libertarian and a right wing perspective, which is, you know, as you were explaining, is so important coming from the conservatives or from right leaning people on the political spectrum, just because normally the the stereotype is Democrats are progress or Democrats are against war and Republicans are for war. But I mean, I think anyone who really does their history and looks into it will find out that there's not really a pro war and anti war party. They're kind of all just pro war. <laughs> they, that's like one of the things that they get together and promote the most is yeah. going into conflicts overseas. Um, what do you do? You see it any different, or how do you see the movement today as opposed to maybe the old school anti-war movement? Well, I really think the only movement that's going to last, as far as being anti-war, or the one that'll stand the test of time is the libertarian approach because i think you're right there is a vein of the right wing that is anti-war and i wouldn't say it's the trump wing because Mm -hmm. like you pointed out he was an anti-war and not just in practice but also in rhetoric you know it was um we're gonna bomb the shit out of them we're gonna kill the terrorist families um we're gonna have the biggest baddest best bombs you know um he ended up governing a little bit better than his rhetoric arguably even you know like his rhetoric was pretty bad i mean he did drop more bombs than obama did so i don't know that whole trump thing is just weird but i think his supporters are not much more anti-war than he is i think they're against a certain type of war i think they're against like the war in Iraq. If we were going to say we're going to invade Iran and we're going to replace the government and create a democracy, I think most Trump people would be against that at this point. They'd be like, you know, maybe you could get them excited like you did about Soleimani and like we have to do something. But when it comes to like an all-out war with Iran, I think they'd be like, meh, (laughs) like this is a dumb (laughs) idea. Yeah. However, if it comes to a proxy war with China in a few years in Taiwan, I don't think you're going to see much of any right wing resistance to that. True. Um, and I see the left wing the same way. Yeah, they were against the war in Vietnam because that was a war to stop communism, right? Or that's like what they said. So they're going to be against wars to stop communism. Um, even though China's not really communist, I bet you will see a lot of left-wingers kind of roll their eyes at the idea of opposing China. But if it's Russia, which is definitely not communist anymore, which is, you know, it has sort of become like a right-wing corporatist government, they're all for stopping them, right? Like right now, you look at liberals and Russia's the new Hitler So I think both the right and left anti-war movements have severe handicaps and you see it bleed into the Liberty movement because we have left-wing and right-wing libertarians within the Liberty movement. So you see a lot of cringe, like Hoppian people who are pretty anti-China, you know, and some of it is just in sentiment, not in, action but if it comes down to it i don't think you'll see heavy opposition from them to get involved same with like venezuela or cuba you see a lot of tendency for those types of people to have a blind spot there because they hate whatever regime it is so much and then on the left you got the same thing with russia or with assad you know those are the (laughs) the boogeymen of the left Assad because he's backed by Russia, you know. Um, 
So I don't know. I think the libertarian movement is the only one that is going to last. And I think you can make arguments from a left-wing or a right-wing stance. But the nice thing about the libertarian one is it's a little bit of both. You know, it's like, this is stupid economically. Um, It's an encroachment of big government, but it's also um, evil and you're killing innocent people and you're trying to tell other countries how to run themselves. And then, um, you know, on top of it, the, the thing that's different about libertarianism is that I don't care how other people want to run their lives as long as they leave me alone. So for a lot of commies who are anti-war, they'll only be anti-war until they see something so bad happening somewhere else that they'll be like, okay, we've got to step in and we got to put a stop to this. Yeah. Because the idea of communism is like, it's kind of a global strategy, right? You want everyone to be this way eventually. Like, you know, we want to liberate the world and we want, you know, human rights for everybody. And you see that bleed into libertarianism sometimes. And that's, to me, that's really scary when you see people start saying like, we want, human rights for everyone around the world it's like well yes i that would be nice but we're not gonna (laughs) do anything other than lead by example to try to get that to happen yeah you can't you can't spread democracy you can't you can't force a free country right like, like uh george bush and all of our presidents have so proudly tried to do yeah i feel like libertarians really need to you know grasp firmly to that idea that the only way to make the world freer is to lead by example and basically make other countries jealous of how well our economic system works how healthy our society is that's the way to do it i mean you're not going to do it through force or coercion and you know both the right and left wing movements are big on you know, forceful change. So I think that's why they ultimately fail the anti-war test. And you see that, like I said, within the heavily right and heavily left factions of libertarianism. Like, it's it's kind of funny, but like the Mises libertarians, like Scott Horton, Dave Smith, Tom Woods, and some would say they're a little bit more right-wing, but they're really like pretty just libertarian like anti-state they're the ones who really aren't falling for any of this crap uh ron paul is another one where it's really like the kind of left and right factions of the liberty movement like students for liberty it's a very right-wing libertarian movement they're basically pro regime change in a lot of ways and then a lot of like the loser brigade libertarians you know, Putin has to be stopped at all costs. And NATO is actually a sort of libertarian institution, don't you know? Because that's governments, you know, through their own free will, deciding to band together or whatever fucking yeah. nonsense they've come <laughs> up with. So, um, yeah, I, I think, like, the solid libertarian anti-war stance is the one to take, and it's the one that'll last. Yeah, and I think, and you touched on this earlier, is, I mean, it's, it boils down to the whole reason that, you know, libertarians are anti-war is based on principle. It's all on the principles of like property rights and and self-ownership and all this, you know, these simple ideas of, you know, there's no, there's no room and there's no place for anybody to be forcing their will on another. And so that, I mean, that does bleed into every political spectrum. It's, you know, you can make the case for, you know, voluntary communism or voluntary, whatever you know right-wing dictatorship if they want to do that kind of like those voluntary associations they all i mean that's just where the libertarian party and the belief system i i I would say belief system before the party but hopefully the party will change um the belief system is just that war always violates these every single one of these um these principles and the worst part too is that like 
you know, let's say, for example, you know, erase all of the history prior to 9-11. Just ignore the fact. Let's just pretend that we weren't over there occupying the land. We weren't bombing and, and meddling with these Middle Eastern countries. Let's just pretend that really did. It did just out of nowhere. You know, these terrorists came and attacked us. The and I mean, sure. OK, people rally around that. But what ultimately happened is, like you said, children were largely vi the victims of what we were doing over there, what the U.S. government all the bombing and the sanctions and all the destruction yeah. was was mostly on the innocent people and then the propaganda was always you know they would do everything to make it sound like okay well even though they weren't identified you know targets like terrorists we because they're a certain gender or an age group they get lumped into this category of you know oh well they're a potential terrorist or potential target all these lies and and, and even um just the like outright lies of throwing babies out of incubators and giving your soldiers viagra to go on massive rape campaigns like just the mm -hmm. craziest shit that people don't realize is just it's just bullshit that's all it is and it's so crazy that right now with the whole russia ukraine situation literally it is propaganda full force and an active time we're actually seeing things get debunked i mean people are falling for it left and right. All these like st stories of heroism or just outright. I mean, someone I know, they, um, they're from, they're from Germany. And I guess this person was hearing reports, um, from their news sources that, you know, these Russians are, are raping women. And I'm like, that sounds very familiar to old stories that ended up not being mm -hmm. true to justify, you know, going into war and, doing all these things that people don't realize that's the that's the saddest part and i think the most aggravating part about being anti-war is you understand the lies you understand the deception that goes on in the corporate press in all the political speeches all the the political elites that come up and and speak in front of everybody it's all just manipulation and it's twisted in a way that makes you feel good like you said it's all about feelings and emotion and even especially it's hilarious too because you know the right wing is all about facts not feelings but as soon as you bring up you know like hey did you realize like i mean ron paul the whole the whole moment that he had in his uh campaign for a presidency the rudy giuliani moment when he's just like they were we were bombing them over there before they before they bombed us here and everyone like people booed him like talk mm -hmm. about emotions and feelings over facts like that was a room of Christian conservatives that just for for simply stating the golden rule, like the most basic Christian principle that Jesus Christ taught loving your neighbor and not doing do good unto others that you would want done unto you. They booed him for that. And it's just unbelievable how easy it is to get wrapped up into being, you know, pro war ultimately because you don't realize you don't like no one takes the time and and i can understand you know why because i didn't understand this stuff for a long time it's only been in the last year or two since i came across scott horton and did my research and i still don't know even a fraction of what's really happening but i know enough to realize that every single war that comes on you know like your dad and like you and all the other uh anti-war voices you know they realize that hey this is we've got to really think rationally we've got to take off you know take a second let let the steam blow over and realize hey we might be getting roped into something that is the the consequences and the results of what our reaction will be will be 10 times worse than what happened i mean 9 11 was just heartbreaking and an awful terrorist event but I would say the 20 years that followed 9-11 are way worse. You cannot compare yeah. what happened, what the U.S. government did, what Obama, Bush, Trump, Biden, all of the presidents have done to these Middle Eastern countries. And then it's funny because people don't realize the complete hypocrisy when, say, when Russia invades Ukraine and then you hear Joe Biden or uh, Mitt Romney or George Bush and Condoleezza Rice claim how, you know, wrong it is for them to invade a sovereign nation when these are the people that conducted 
the most invasions overseas when they conducted the worst campaigns against you know sovereign nations and yeah. and then people will act as if what you know putin is saying you know we want the denazification we want uh, of ukraine we want you know free and fair elections you know we don't want a u.s puppet regime and like for most people they're like well, what the hell does that mean like that denazification but when you realize that the u.s backs like nazi battalions over in ukraine it's just like you can't make it up and people yeah. just don't have the slightest idea and i think that's the that's the most difficult part for me to deal with is like having to unexplain all of the bullshit that people are being fed and like because they get so lost they just get so lost and like in disbelief of like what do you mean the like obama a black president helped install or helped support neo-nazis in ukraine like that doesn't make any sense why would mm -hmm. he do that um yeah i i mean what what's been for you the hardest part to deal with you know as being anti-war when you're talking to people what what just like keeps what's the roadblock you keep hitting and like just drives you up a wall um yeah it, it's what you're describing with you know well what are we gonna do nothing or you know and it's like well no but we could well you know actually yes we should do nothing but that's not what we've been doing <laughs> we've been you know we created isis basically and then we used isis and al-qaeda I uh, gave them more weapons to fight against Assad. Um, you know, we created Al Qaeda by, you know, backing freedom fighters against the Soviets in the eighties and nineties, um, or mostly the eighties, but, you know, early nineties. And then we, uh, you know, we backed the Soviets against the Nazis. I mean, I, I don't know how far back you want to go. Like we've always done this type of thing and it's just never worked out in our favor we always end up fighting the people that we prop up and you know try to use to terrorize somebody else um and the thing is like if you actually hate i remember Rand paul made this point if we want to defeat isis we should stop giving them weapons <laughs> you know it's a pretty um like even if you're not on the same page as us like being against the war on terrorism if you want to fight a war on terrorism at least stop giving the terrorists weapons you know like yeah. that'd be a good first step um and yeah like you're right i mean these countries do suck anyways like iraq under saddam hussein i would not want to live there and i don't think i'd want to live in iran or you know any of these countries in the middle east um, they suck, but we just make the problems worse. And I don't think we're actually there with the intent of solving any of these problems. You know, I don't think it's really blowback and, you know, carelessness or stupidity. I think it's maliciousness, you know, like they're purposefully causing a lot of these problems so that we can just create quagmires and pump weapons into proxy wars forever mm -hmm. and make a certain few people very rich. Yeah, and maybe um, maybe elaborate on that for, because I'm imagining that maybe a few of my listeners aren't really aware of who the they are, like, because we're not talking about the soldiers, we're not talking about, you know, no. overwhelmingly, it's not these people, you know, the ones who volunteer and sign up because they, they're passionate about defending our freedoms. Who is it that's really, you see as the they in this getting rich and the ones that want these problems? Well, it's the weapons contractors, Raytheon, Halliburton, Boeing, you know, they make a killing off all these wars. Um, it's also the Israel lobby, APAC. Um, you know, the Iraq war was basically fought for Israel and then Halliburton and Raytheon made a lot of profit off of it, especially Halliburton. But, uh, you know, that was crafted by a group of Zionist neocons, the clean break strategy. Um, you know, with, uh, I'm going to forget all their names, but David Wormser, um, Douglas Fife, and there's like four other people who came up with this policy that they crafted 
uh, to benefit Israel. Like it wasn't United States interests at stake there at all. It was just, you know, to prop up Israel. Um, and like the blockade in Yemen, that doesn't directly um, benefit the United States in any way. That's to right. placate the Saudi government because after we fought the war in Iraq, we accidentally left the Dawa party in charge, which is an Iranian sympathetic government. Um, and then we also made the Iran nuclear deal. So the Saudis were all pissed, like, what the hell? You got to do something for us. So we're like, okay, well, we'll, you know, we'll back you guys and Al Qaeda against the Houthis and let you genocide, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, starve them to death. Yeah. Um, and bomb the shit out of them too. So yeah, it's a very small group of people lobbyists from the weapons contractors from israel um or you know not necessarily from israel but you know israeli backed interests and then saudi backed interests that mm -hmm. just create this disgusting perpetual warfare state that we're in and we've made it so bad that the warfare state is basically propping up the u.s dollar at this point um so, you know, our, our alliance with Saudi Arabia, our friendliness with them um, has enabled us to maintain our world reserve currency status because of OPEC using the petrodollar to trade oil. Mm -hmm. So our, our economy is so far from being genuinely stable that we have to placate the Saudis at this point, And then we have to be in these perpetual wars to keep the economy going. Uh, because if we lose that world reserve currency status, we can't run these huge trade deficits anymore. Um, and we're going to be in trouble. And it looks like we're headed for that now anyway, because yeah. Russia, after getting kicked off the SWIFT banking system, is starting to solidify its independence by making deals with china and saudi arabia is not even picking up the phone for biden so we might be getting there anyway which i'm okay with <laughs> you know like it, it's gonna suck for the united states but i don't care like i don't want to be supporting the saudis anymore um and you know this is uh, this is another point like the Two humanitarian crises that I really care about are the blockade in Yemen and the blockade in Gaza. So both of these places, people are starving to death. They're being murdered indiscriminately. And they're being purposefully wiped off the map in a systematic way. And our government directly supports both both of those efforts. So there's a little bit of mixed information on what's going on to the Uyghurs in China. Mm -hmm. Like I've heard some stuff that yeah. the data has really been manipulated and there isn't really a genocide going on there. But right. you, even if there is, like let's say there is a genocide of the Houthis, or sorry, of the uh, Uyghurs in China. Um, and let's say Putin does actually start ethnically cleansing the Ukrainians and, you know, that's bad. And I'm sad that that's going to happen. But in neither of those circumstances is our government directly supporting that effort. In fact, our government is actively opposing those efforts. Mm -hmm. So I want to end the atrocities that are enabled by my tax dollars. So that's why I talk about Yemen and Palestine, because those are areas where people are being murdered, starved to death, intentionally erased from existence with the support of my government. If we stop supporting those efforts, I wouldn't talk about them nearly as much. And also, I feel like we'd have more of a solid footing to stand on to criticize other countries, you know? Yeah. I, I've even said on Twitter, like, just make this deal with me. If we're going to criticize other countries for murdering people, let's at least stop 
you know, doing our own genocides first. Like, let's completely pull out of supporting the Saudis, which, you know, I'm, I'm assuming like Biden was supposed to end this a year ago. He was supposed right. to completely end all aid to Saudi Arabia in their um, conquest in Yemen. He hasn't like, we're basically still giving them as much as we were a year ago. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming now that they're kind of snubbing him by not answering him about oil, he's probably going to be kissing up to them even more where really this should be the opportunity to be like, all right, well, fine. Fuck you guys. You know, like we're completely done with you. You're not even going to talk to us about pumping more oil. You just lost all your support in Yemen. This seems like the perfect excuse to do it, but I'm sure it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be like, Oh, okay. We'll give you even more, you know, fighter planes and even more missiles and whatever else you want. We'll just give it to you. As long as you guys let us, um, you know, get more oil or whatever. So I don't know. It's all really disturbing, but um, yeah, it's so, so the exasperating part is getting people to realize like, look, there are atrocities that are way worse than what Putin's doing way worse than whatever China's doing to the Uyghurs that the the Saudis are doing to the people in Yemen and Mm -hmm. your tax dollars support it. And then, you know, to a lesser extent, what's going on in Gaza and the settlements in Israel, that is also detestable. And that's happening under, uh, you know, the support of your tax dollars. So let's end those first. And then let's have a conversation about how to persuade other countries to stop murdering people. But we take for, you know, it's so funny. um, I made a tweet the other day about how Biden's numbers are way worse than Putin's when it comes to locking people up and murdering people like Joe Biden. I'm not going to call him an architect of the Iraq war, but he was a driving force that made it possible because he was on the, I think he was on the the foreign affairs committee in the Senate. And he basically drove that war through. Um, So right there, there's a million people who have died because of the Iraq war Um, way more than Putin's killed, (laughs) not even close. And then you look at the 1994 crime bill, tens of thousands of people incarcerated for victimless crimes. So his numbers are way higher than Putin's. So if you're an, if you're a Biden fan or a Trump fan, like Trump's numbers were higher too. I don't know about incarceration wise, but certainly, um, you know, for people killed, he dropped more bombs than Obama did in four years. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we're just in absolutely no position to criticize what other governments are deciding to do. So let's at least clean up our own house first. Take the log, you know, I'm going to use more Christian terminology here. Take the log out of your own eye before you're going to remove the speck from your neighbors. And we do have a log compared to their specs. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I'm glad you bring up the Yemen thing. Cause yeah, we hadn't brought it up to this point. And I think that is, I agree with you. That is, if there's one issue people should know about it's Yemen and it's, and also Palestine. And it's funny actually, because I, I do remember over the last few years, even before I was like into all this anti-war stuff and understanding geopolitics and foreign policy, I would see like occasionally on, on social media, for maybe a day, someone would, people would be cycling, maybe like, hey, did you know about the war in Yemen? And then it would disappear. And then now, like, two years later, when I'm actually, like, understanding this and trying to bring attention, I'm like, hey, you motherfuckers, remember when you, like, shared those things that, like, those, tw- those videos and those stories, like, like, why did you stop? Like, why are yep. we not talking about that? You only did it because it was trendy, but, like, this actually matters. And it's... I love that you point out, you know, the the alliance we have with Saudi Arabia and in Israel and these countries that like, it's such a blind spot for people. I mean, even just the other day, um, someone referred to me a Ben Shapiro's most recent podcast on Biden and the oil situation, and mm-hmm. how how horrible and evil is it that Biden is looking to do deals with Venezuela and Iran to get oil. <laughs> But then he leaves out that, oh, yeah, we're also talking to Saudi Arabia. And he goes on this whole one hour podcast of like, 
the Venezuelan government is just evil and they're making the people resort to eating their dogs out the street and they're starving and like all these things i'm like sure yeah no it's legitimate yeah. criticism no, it's all true but but yeah. <laughs> like interesting that you don't mention saudi arabia i wonder why like in there and if anything saudi arabia is the one that's doing the most reminiscent actions of russia out of the three countries iran venezuela yeah. and saudi arabia saudi arabia is the only one that's actually actively slaughtering people on a daily basis and then and then proceeding to blockade them which for anyone who doesn't know just means preventing anything like basic goods and medicine from getting in so then children and babies literally vomit to death and starve and die from basic diseases that any other first world country can treat or any even third yeah. world country that can get medicine can treat and it's oh man yeah i that's that's the thing that is so just sad to watch is how the blind spots of the criticisms of how evil is Biden for doing this, but then completely ignoring every other thing that it doesn't matter the party. And I can't reiterate this enough of it doesn't matter Democrats or Republicans like they both suck on war. They can be good maybe at one moment like you were talking about, like on a certain thing or a certain aspect or a specific war, they could be good at it. But generally speaking, no, I mean, even the Democrats praised Trump when he dropped bombs on, was it Syria? Yeah. Yeah. So like he became presidential in that moment. <laughs> so, so it doesn't matter the party. It just, that's what, and to me, that's the beauty of anti-war is it's, it's not political. It's not partisan. It's just right. being against letting like killing innocent people and destroying civilizations. And like you said, making sure that our own house is in order and that we're not supporting any of these horrible atrocities that always come back to bite us. I mean, you know, that's the thing people don't realize is a lot of the, all the terrorist attacks and stuff that, that happen nine times out of 10, they're related back to the, the, you know, things that us or our allies are doing over in the middle East. So it's, it's, it's an important work that I think you and many of the others in the anti-war movement are, are doing. so I want to be respectful of your time. I want to wrap up here, but, um, I want to ask, do you have any, who would you recommend for my listeners to go listen to as far as understanding, you know, anti-war, yes, anti-war, but also like to understand the true history and the real context of these things. Like who can they go listen to to understand the Middle East? Who can they go listen to to understand the whole Israeli-Palestine thing? Like who are some of the guys you would suggest? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um... Yeah, I would obviously recommend Scott Horton. He's great. Um, read his book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. That's just a very reader-friendly um, outline of everything that has led to where we are now as far as the war on terrorism goes. Um, when it comes to like Middle Eastern geopolitics, Adam Fitzgerald is a very good source. He's someone I've had on my show a couple times. Uh, he really understands that very, very well. Um, if you're looking specifically into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the connections to the United States government, and you want to go down some rabbit holes, definitely check out Ryan Dawson at the Anti-Neocon Report. Uh, he's someone I have on my show pretty often um and watch my show i mean i talk about this type of stuff and i have them on to talk about it um but also just you know check out antiwar.com the libertarian institute uh I, pete quinones is really good on a lot of this stuff you know he talks about uh china and russia and you know the warmongering tendencies that everyone has and why they shouldn't um but yeah, I, I would start with that. Uh, the Ron Paul Institute is another good one. Uh, Daniel McAdams is a pioneer in this stuff. I mean, he was Ron Paul's foreign policy um, director or whatever. So definitely go check them out. Um, and then also for a good left-wing source, I would check out The Empire Files, Abby Martin, uh she runs that and she's very good on a ton of this stuff 
Um, but yeah, th those are the sources I would check out. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you can go listen to the mainstream if you want to, but you'll get that anywhere. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I'm, I mean, I know you're supposed to have a balanced approach, but you get that in general anyway. Like you get that from everybody except Tucker Carlson. If right. you want the pro war narrative, just log into Facebook and you'll get it. <laughs> So yeah. those are the, those are the ones I'd suggest though. Okay. Yeah. And that's, yeah, I think all those are the guys that I usually listen to. I'll, I'll have to see if maybe you can connect me with Ryan to, to try to have him on to talk about, I mean, I know that'll probably get me banned from everything from posing, but it doesn't I'm still matter. on everything. So, you know, yeah, <laughs> but I don't give a shit about that. And I don't have like a massive platform. I just want the, whoever is listening to me, I want them to know who you are. I want them to know who Scott is. I want them to know who Ryan is. You know, all these important names that talk about, you know, why you should be anti-war, why you should oppose all of these things that, you know, your government is doing regardless of party. So um, mm -hmm. before, I, before I have you plug away, is there any last points or anything you want to add, anything that you need to, you want to inform people of or share? Sure. So... You know, in Syria, we supported Al-Qaeda and ISIS against Assad, but some of like the Al-Qaeda members that we were supporting were the exact same people we had been fighting in Iraq just like two years earlier. So Islamic extremists are okay as long as we're supporting them. And then in Ukraine... We've supported the Svoboda Party, the Stepa Bandera Group, um, the Asov Battalion, and these are literal Nazis. You know, like they're they're not like Chris Cantwell, basement dwelling dumbasses. They're like hardcore ultra nationalist anti Semitic groups that are descendants of people who were in the SS and people who organized militias to round up Jews, execute Jews in Ukraine and fight for the Nazis in World War II. But we supported them in 2014 and we continue to support them uh, because they're our Nazis. Um, so like the United States government tries to frame this as though this is like radical Islamism trying to take over the world, even though you've got Saudi Arabia and Israel, whose goals are practically aligned, mm -hmm. even though they're Jewish and Muslim, which you're supposed to think are just like, you yeah. know, um, just ideological enemies. Can't coexist. And then we're, you know, in Europe, we're supposed to think it's democracy against fascism. When you're supporting literal Nazis, <laughs> you know, like the bad guys, Nazis, like, Nazis being the bad guys is a pretty easy <laughs> universal approach, but we don't even think that. So we'll use ISIS and we'll use Nazis when we want to. And that should just give you a hint as to how horrible our government is and why getting involved in these wars is a mistake. Do you really want us to be supporting ISIS and Nazis? I don't. So. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And <laughs> I just, it, I always laugh every time because I'm like, you can't make this shit up. <laughs> like, like for four years, the Democrats are screaming about Nazis and all this shit. And then all of a sudden, Putin starts taking their talking points and they don't, they don't seem to be saying much about that. They're pretty quiet about the yeah. actual And remember Nazis. the Republicans under Obama, they were upset that he wouldn't say radical Islamic extremism. But they were also upset that he wasn't supportive enough of these rebel groups against Assad. You know, he wasn't drawing enough of a red line or whatever. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, it's, just, uh, it's just mind boggling, man. Yeah, there's no there's no real principle to it. It's just whatever is convenient and whatever, whatever is going to get them the the win and the oil and all that shit that they want. So Awesome. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate your time. Where can uh, people go to find your work? Just go ahead and plug everything that you want to. Sure. Well, um, I'm the only naturalist capitalist podcast out there. So if you just Google naturalist capitalist, you'll find it. But I'm on YouTube, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a few other places. 
Um, I go live on YouTube. That's how I do everything live on YouTube. And then it goes over to Odyssey. And then within a couple of days, I download the audio file and I'll have all the audio up on Spotify and all that. So you can download it. Um, I'm working on getting Peter Schiff back on the show in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Um, I'm going to be on, going on a bunch of different shows coming up. And I'll be mostly focusing on, you know, potential war with Russia and the history of our involvement with Ukraine and probably talking about China, too, because I see in the fall and I feel like this might pivot toward China and also China watching this whole exchange with Russia and Ukraine. They might feel emboldened to be aggressive toward Taiwan. And then I'm just worried about what our reaction is going to be. So yeah. I'll be talking about a lot of that stuff and economic stuff, uh, less on political theory. I sometimes talk about that, but it's kind of irrelevant right now. Right. Um, just trying to talk about what's actually going on. And then uh, you can follow me as Reed Coverdale on Twitter, Instagram, um, Gab, Getter, Float, um, all those places, and I post my work there. And we'll see how long before I get banned off of those. But um, <laughs> yeah, just got to keep preaching the good word and hope people pay attention. Yeah, no, and I think you're doing a great job at it, man. I like I said, when you opened up for Scott, it was, it was great. And so your show is awesome. I, I really do hope people start checking you out because they, they'll definitely gain a lot from the work that you do. And you're like a nexus for having these guys like Ryan, Scott, and all the guys you mentioned, you've had them. So you're like a one-stop shop for anybody to just get everything from. So yeah, thanks so much, man. And, and keep up what you're doing and hopefully uh, we'll keep running into each other and get get eventually you know out of all this bullshit and convince enough people to stop supporting <laughs> all the terrorists and nazis that you know we are just so bad at doing <laughs> yeah man thanks for having me on yeah no problem take care man you too <laughs>